Welcome to In Plain English, a podcast where we discuss scientific research in terms that are accessible to everyone, not just the experts. I'm your host, Jamie Moffa. Before we get started, a few quick reminders. You can download the paper for each episode at inplainenglishpod.org by clicking on the episodes link in the main menu. We believe in open access science for all, so the papers we choose will always be free for you to download. If you have a question or comment about the previous article, you can submit it under the Continue the Conversation tab. If you are interested in being a guest or presenter for a future episode, you can click on the Become a Guest tab on the website. You can reach out to us on Facebook or Twitter at Plain English Sci and subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. With that out of the way, on to today's paper. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our first In Plain English episode of 2022. We are so happy to have you all back with us. And kicking us off for this first episode of the new year uh, is our presenter, Teodora Stoika. Uh, Teodora, welcome back to the show. Hey, nice to be here. Can you uh, give a little bit of an introduction? Sure. Uh, so my name is Teodora Stoika. I am at University of Arizona. I work here as a postdoc in the psychology department, and I'm looking at how our brain changes as we age. And joining Teodora for this episode are our two guests, Emma Sword and Abby Kimball. Uh, Emma and Abby, would you each like to briefly introduce yourselves? Hi, everybody. I'm Emma. Happy to be here today. I'm a college graduate here as your resident layperson. Um, and I'm Abby Kimball. Um, I'm a third year PhD student at Washington University in St. Louis. Um, I'm in Dr. David Sibley's lab, and I study the parasite Cryptosporidium. Cool. All right. Well, uh, without further ado, Teodora, would you like to introduce the paper for us? Absolutely. So um, this week, uh, or this month rather, uh, we are talking about the um, topic of my postdoc, which is aging in the brain. And so I picked this paper called Reorganization of Brain Networks and Aging, um, a review of functional connectivity studies. So it's basically just a big summary of what we already know and most of the things we don't know about the aging human brain. I already have a question. Um, so I guess I was just wondering if like, you know anything about like the history of how we thought about the aging brain? Like, did we used to have a different model, you know, back in the day or something? Like how did we used to explain why people go senile? Go senile, okay. Or, so you know, whatever, yeah or have dementia or whatnot, yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, that's a good question. Um, my expertise in, is in healthy aging thus far. I've not looked at, um, I will probably at some point look at Alzheimer's disease and other types of dementia. We, we didn't really know what happened until we cut open uh, brains of people with um, Alzheimer's in particular. And we saw that there, you know, there were some things that kind of looked weird. Then we put them under the mi microscope and there are these uh, neuro neurofibrillary tangles. And so that's kind of what we thought all of dementia was. Um, and my expertise is working at not a microscopic level. Uh, I'm just going to put that out there is that I don't, um, I, I don't look under the microscope. I look at brain connectivity on a global level. So how is the brain reorganizing itself 
as we age, because it does reorganize itself in adolescence as well, which is not the topic of this podcast, but what happens as we get older, older. Yeah. Um, another clarification I had. So you just, you, you, you differentiated between senile and like just aging. Can, can the brain age without there being defects, if that makes any sense? Yeah, that's a great question. So the, the paper that we're going to discuss looks at healthy aging or ha, which is a way that the brain changes in which there is some cognitive decline, but there are other mechanisms, compensatory mechanisms that make you not, as you would say, senile. So there's like, um, probably like a clinical designation of cognitively declined versus senile. Okay. Yeah. So there are several tests that we have participants do in the lab that designate them in different categories. And what I'm looking at now, particularly is just regular healthy aging. And there are other, you know, designations for different uh, levels of cognitive decline, dementia being one of them. So does dementia have to have like brain pathology then? I think the answer to this is that everything is related to the brain. So yes. So I just want to start us off with some basic definitions because I'm going to use them and I don't want anybody to be confused. Brain connectivity um, is just the pattern of how brain regions communicate with each other. And there are two types of brain connectivity. One is structural. So just as the structural scaffolding of a building. So does the brain have fiber tracks that connect different brain regions together? That's structural connectivity. And functional connectivity is just how these regions are synced together and they sort of hum together in time. There's also, the paper does talk about effective connectivity. Um, this is more of sort of a more advanced way of studying brain connectivity. Most of the time, we don't have um, directionality between the brain regions. So we have two regions that communicate with one another, but we don't know if one is activating uh, first or second. So with effective connectivity, you have this differentiation. Other things that are important here, there the paper talks about task, functional magnetic resonance imaging and resting state. So task is just what it sounds like. You have someone in the scanner and you give them a task to do. Um, and then you look at what their brain does, how it activates in, in response to this task that you gave it. The resting state fMRI is somewhat counterintuitive. Like why would we care what the brain is doing when a person is just sitting there? This is important because it tells us how the brain is inherently organized without giving um, a task. That is the difference between task fMRI and resting state fMRI. Most of the paper talks about resting state. We are interested what happens to the resting state networks, these networks that are in the brain um, as we age. And so most of the paper talks about these types of networks. Do you guys have any questions thus far? Yes. So on the topic of MRIs, something that actually really jumped out to me reading this paper was I never really knew how an MRI worked. It was just like magic magnet, take out your nipple piercings, end of story. Like everybody knows an MRI is a magnet, but I never knew that it was because of the different magnetic susceptibility between oxygenated and deoxygenated blood. And I just thought that was so interesting to learn that that's actually how it works. That is how it works. I thought you were going to ask me and I'm like, oh no, she's going to make me give her equations and stuff. And I can't remember all that from grad school <laughs> and I'm going to make my advisors really upset. 
No, but that's right. So it's a big magnet and it basically, it gives us a picture of oxygenated blood in, in our brain. And that's sort of like an indirect measure of how we think the brain is working. So if a part of the brain is soliciting more oxygen, we think that that part of the brain is working, right? So that is the picture that after a lot of processing comes up as the pretty colors that you guys see in sci pop kind of stuff. Okay. So I'm in science, but I, the only thing I've ever really learned about neuro is very cellular. Like I, I know how like a neuron works, for instance. And so that kind of, there's like this disconnect between the neuron cell and action potential and like the pink blob <laughs> that I think of. So, you know, you've talked about like fibers and stuff like that, but if you could just like fill in the blanks a little bit. So you want me to take you from the moleculars of the global, just no big deal. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So for those of you that are listening that don't know what an action potential is, it's basically the energy that a, a neuron is, um, is, ex, is expounding when it communicates with another neuron. It's like the spark, if you, if you want to think about it that way. And so at the molecular level, if you have a slice of brain and you can put a little electrode in there, you can actually hear it popping. You can hear like a click, click, click. Maybe that's not what it sounds like, <laughs> but it does. There is a sound. There's like a, like, there's a crackling sound that the neurons are actually talking to each other. Uh, a group of neurons that are all sparking together, if you will, we can measure that with um, other, other methodologies, not just MRI, but we can measure that with PET scans. Um, um, EEG, for example, also looks at um, these pools of action potentials. And then that kind of, that kind of look like regions that are now activated. And so what happens with MRI is that these action potentials, again, we're going back to the whole oxygen thing, right? Each neuron's using a little bit of oxygen. Each group of neurons is using a large amount of oxygen. And so we are actually looking at very large, very, very large groups of neurons talking to each other do, based on the calculation of this ratio of deoxygenated blood and oxygenated blood, with the assumption being that if they use more oxygen, they're actually active and they're doing something. And I'll add uh, as well that the fiber tracks are just, so each of these neurons has a wire basically that it sends this action potential down to other neurons. And the fiber tracks are bundles of these wires together. The wires are called axons for people who are not neuro people. <laughs> so when you were talking about the like directionality, being able to figure out what, where it's going from where. So is that just basically being able probably in like milliseconds, I'm assuming seeing blood flow from one region to the other region. So that's one of the problems with MRI. <laughs> Um, things in the brain happen very, very quickly, but we do not, MRI is not good for, for temporal resolution. Um, so it's quite slow. It takes about six seconds to figure out how things are working in the brain. However, there's very many fancy computational tools that we use to sort of account for all of that. And so we think an fMRI is really the most, it's very good for spatial resolution. So we have very, very, very clear 
pictures or as clear as we can get at this point in time with our technology of what a brain looks like undergoing a particular task. And I just, uh, you know, I've heard a lot about how like MRIs have gotten better and better. And so I was just wondering like, you know, like what more improvements there could be potentially, or if this is kind of like the true limitation of the system. So I think the actual machine, the only other upward progress we can make is adding more Tesla values. So we have a 3T or 3.5T, which is what most universities have. Some really fancy universities have a 7T. Um, so that improves the, the spatial resolution. I think what will happen is our computational technology will advance, not the actual MRI. Well, maybe the MRI. I don't know physics that well to tell you. But I do know that it is the way that we're analyzing data now for neuroimaging, just in the time that I've been in grad school, has multiplied greatly. And we have made great strides in figuring out the correct way of basically interpreting signals from the brain right and taking out the noise that is what neuroimagers do we want to make sure that what we're actually looking at is actual brain activity and not just random noise have you found that there's more like background noise per se in people who have a really active inner voice like for example somebody with adhd so you're like trying to see what their brain is doing while they're doing a task but they're also thinking about like five other things at the same time that's a great question um i don't i don't know the neurobiology of adhd maybe their brain is noisier i don't i don't know um i think the definition here of noise is kind of like vague so let me just try to define it so what i'm talking about is noise in the sense of this is pure physiological noise as in so your heart and your breathing basically show up in your in your brain like we're, it, it is it's sort of like all connected and so one of the ways that we clean up data is we take out physiological noise because we're not interested in that so that's what i mean by noise i mean things that are not related to brain activity at all there is noise other type of noise that is still brain noise, but we're not interested in it because of the task that we're doing. So um, when you're talking about an inner voice, an inner voice is actually still using um, like language regions. And so we would be able to see that. However, if you're doing a task task, so if you're, if you're asking someone, okay, you're now going to stare at a bunch of pictures, usually the person's uh, occipital cortex, which is responsible for vision and visual processing mostly is on like they're never not going to be looking at the pic unless they close their eyes i guess but they're usually it, it's very very consistent and during resting state the resting networks in the brain are very much the same in all people that's what's kind of cool about them that you can without a task everybody's brain kind of all the all the networks are there so with some you know very 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 slight differences. So I guess that was something that I definitely was thinking about with like, what is resting state? Like meditation, would that look different than resting state or? Yes, meditation okay. is a active pinpointing of attention towards mm -hmm. something. Um, the, the, I will just kind of put it out there. The brain is never resting. My <laughs> advisor actually hates the term resting because the brain is never actually resting. It should be called something like on, on, on default or something, because there is a default mode network as one of them, but yeah, meditation is not 
So with these subjects, when they're resting, are they basically just like, just chilling the MRI? Yeah. Think thoughts to yourself. Okay. Yeah, they're, they're looking, the most common one is you give them a black screen with a okay. white cross. Mm -hmm. and so just look at the white cross, allow your thoughts to wander as they would. Okay. That's usually the instruction. That's really interesting that so many people show similarities during resting state. Cause like sometimes my brain feels like a ping pong ball and I'm like, is the MRI going to show up like that? Just like all craziness happening. What I assume is happening in your ping pong ball <laughs> metaphor is that you still have the same networks. Everybody has the same networks. Apparently we're all organized kind of in the same way. But what might happen is you're switching between them very quickly. And that might seem like you, you can't focus. The word network is used so much in this article. Can you go in depth more about what that means in this context? A brain network is a set of brain regions that work together. So one of the things that has happened in the past, um, I don't know, I want to say seven, seven to eight years is that this is one of your history questions, Abby, is that we thought that uh, the brain is brain region specific. By what I mean is this brain region does this one thing and only this one thing, and we're only going to look at this one thing that it does. Okay. And it's become very apparent that that is not how the brain works at all especially in aging. Um, for example, the hippocampus, which is responsible for memory, has just been very a big focus of like, what happens? Why are we losing their memory? Let's just look at the hippocampus. But the hippocampus is actually a part of a network that works together with other brain regions. Um, and that's what makes you know the brain interesting is that it's very dynamic. It, it can switch between networks. It has compensatory mechanisms. It's very plastic. And so in that way, when you look, instead of a brain specific perspective, you take a network perspective, a global perspective, it's, it's much, much more interesting to answer these questions. Now we've got some definitions out of the way. Let me just go over a couple of important resting state networks. So these are networks that show up during those um, rest times in the MRI. The most studied in aging is the default mode network. This is a task negative network. This means that it is on when there isn't really a lot of outside stimuli. So if you're, um, I don't know, waiting for a coffee or something and you start planning your day, that's the default mode network coming on. Also, it's tied to emotion. It's tied to imagination. Okay. Other ones are the, I think I've already mentioned the occipital network. It's tied to uh, perception and vision. There's the executive network, which is just tied to decision-making, um, the sensory motor network, which is tied to sensory and um, action kind of things. And um, the salience network, which is tied to attention to things that are important. So given all these things, the paper sort of goes into, well, what happens in aging? What do we know? The one thing that is consistent is that they've found increased activity in the front of the brain and decreased activity in other parts of the brain. So it's that part isn't consistent. Like where it's decreased is not consistent. But what is consistent is that there's increased activity in the front of brain. And so a lot of people think that this is compensatory, right? So a lot of the brain regions are uh, perhaps not working at full ca capacity. So the frontal regions kind of take over to, to do the work. 
is there a hypothesis for why the frontal regions in particular take over? Like, does that make sense? Okay, so that's a great question. There's all these theories, right? So one of the theories is it's called the de-differentiation hypothesis. We think we thought, or we think that these networks and these regions kind of have specific functions. They do work together, but they sort of have specific functions. And so this hypothesis states that over time, as we age, the brain regions don't really do their specific job anymore. So the way that I thought about conceptualizing things, th this is you're in a really quiet coffee shop and you're talking to your friend and you can hear your friend really well because there's no other noise around. But as you age, you get it gets louder and louder and louder and you just can't really, there's too many things going on and you can't really talk. And so this may be due to, this is, I'm just sort of like reiterating what the author said, but this may be due to a disconnection hypothesis, which means that things are just not as connected. And so this brings a lot of noise out. I feel like Abby's going to have a question right now. Yeah, I guess in general. So it seemed like maybe what they were positing is that you still have the same like activity level as usual, but it's just that it's not getting like funneled or filtered properly, or maybe that you even have extra energy, right? Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. Um, a lot of what our brain does is filter, <laughs> a lot of it. If you think about it, what you do during, the, during a day is you pay attention to different things that you need to pay attention to. That takes an enormous amount of energy. If you are not being able to filter, if you have the same amount of stuff, but you can't filter, then yeah, it becomes like super noisy, right? So that leads to this de-differentiation hypothesis. I did want to ask um, about de-differentiation, de-differentiation de and what that means. Yeah. So if you just take the DE part of it out, differentiation just means things that are different, right? So there's a certain segregation in the brain networks of the, um, of the brain, and each one is sort of assigned to its own little duty. And we think that with aging, there's less assignment, right? And so things become a little bit noisier, each network doesn't communicate as smoothly or as efficiently with other networks. We don't know why this is, but the de-differentiation means it becomes less differentiated as we age. Um, there's a compensation hypothesis. Like I said, that like I mentioned before, um, the frontal regions are compensating for this drop in activity in other brain regions. And I just love academics. They decided to name them Harold Crunch, PASA, and Stack, each one of them having, you know, weird acronyms that I'm not going to go into because they're not that important right now. But Harold just states that usually when we're in our younger years, we have a lot of lateralization. That means we use one side of our brain more than the other. And so that might mean that when we get old, we use both, but not well. That's one hypothesis. There's the crunch hypothesis, which um, 
just has to do with memory tasks and which memory is a huge deal, right? If you can't really remember how to structure your day, then all the other things that depend on that kind of like fall. The PASA, which I will come back to. I feel like people think memory issues and they're like, oh, it's just forgetting your house keys or something. But it really goes so much deeper than that. It's like remembering how to take a shower and what soap to use you know it's like all kinds of everyday things you do that you just don't think about require memory and I feel like a lot of people don't fully conceptualize what a memory degradation and the impact of that really looks like absolutely yeah it's it affects everything especially because on tv like when somebody is about to get diagnosed with dementia or something it's literally like them forgetting their keys and small things like that well it is how it starts yeah it is how it starts but it does of course it's a tv show so it's not going to show you all the nuances of what that actually means so the okay so this characteristic um brain pattern of aging yeah it's never seen in any other in like any other groups like any other syndromes or that's a good question that i do not know the answer to each pathology i will answer with this each pathology kind of has its own brain signature but my expertise is in healthy because you kind of have to start with healthy to see how the brain goes awry so um that's why i kind of start with I, i'm starting with healthy aging and then we know a little bit about what goes awry in healthy aging or how it changes. It doesn't go awry, but it changes. And then that really gives us an idea of what can happen in Alzheimer's, for example. So with these studies, are they looking longitudinally at like a group before they're considered aged and after, or is it just non-aged and aged? Usually what happens is they have two cohorts, one of young and one of old. Um, young being 18 to 42, 45, 45 to 85. Yeah, because I guess what I'm just trying to get at is like life expectancy is getting longer and longer. So I'm just kind of wondering if like this is just something that always happens at the same time in development or if it's something that, yeah, has to do with like obviously there's environmental factors and whatever else, but. Yeah, um, I'll get to this with one of the theories. Um, I think that this theory is gonna get to your question, this stack R theory. So their original theory was stack, which just meant that there's a compensatory scaffolding that arises in aging, which just means some things get stronger to compensate for the things that get weaker. And then they revised it and they called it stack R because they realized that the scaffolding doesn't just arise out of nowhere. It's dependent on many, many, many things. Uh, plasticity, exercise, diet, um, if whether or not you have the gene for Alzheimer's, for example, all of these things come together. I mean, if you look at that model, there's just hundreds of variables, right? One of which is we're living longer, right? So what does this mean for our brains? Our brains have never lived to 100 years, right? So this is a very new field. And is we need to understand what happens because we're going to live longer and we want to live longer better. Um, actually, one of the things that I was reading, uh, sort of unrelated to this, but sort of related is there are many labs across the wor world that are looking into anti-aging and 
preventing aging from ever happening. And what they all have in common and what their results are showing is that you can't really stop aging, but what you can do is sort of freeze your middle age. So not your youngest, not like your twenties, but you're like forties and fifties when your health is pretty much okay, unless you have some debilitating disease and your cognition is pretty okay. And so you can freeze that with all these things that I've just mentioned, like diet, exercise, the things that we have control over. And if you have, if you're blessed with good genes, but that's all they've been sort of been able to kind of like figure out. So our brain will age. It's just, you know, how much control do we have over it? On that note of anti-aging, We've, I'm sure we've all seen the ads for those apps that are like, work out your brain, learn your brain age. Um, are there actual like mental exercises that you would recommend? So the best brain exercises are body exercises and learn. So there's two things that just have been shown. I don't know about, I don't know what the apps actually have you do, but if you are doing something that you've never done before, that will make you age less. That's, it doesn't matter what it is. You could learn a new instrument. You could try a new recipe. You could walk to work in a way that you've never walked before. All of those things help. And the other thing is exercise. So if you move your body, it's just, it doesn't even have to be hard exercise. It could just be like walking with a friend, walking your dog, all of these things kind of pep up the brain, anything new, but anything new, that's like the one thing that all these researchers have found. If you give a human something new to learn, that's a little bit challenging, not too challenging, because you don't want to stress yourself out, mm -hmm. <laughs> but that's challenging enough for you to um, enjoy, then your brain will really, there's new connections. If the brain can make new connections, it like wants to stay alive. <laughs> Man, I was hoping you would just say like Sudoku or something. Sudoku helps if you've never done it before, but I feel like you like it, so. But I've heard that like hallucinogenic drugs also like change your brain plasticity and connectivity. I think, I think psilocybin is just now making its comeback. Like it had, um, it's, it's making, it had like its, its heyday in like the sixties, but we didn't have neuroimaging back then. And now um, and the war on drugs happened and the war on drugs happened and it's showing. So basically what it does is it just these networks that I'm talking about, it basically makes them cohere or talk to each other better. So I would assume that it, it's nothing but good for the brain to make its networks more work more efficiently and talk better to each other. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but so far, Jamie, I don't know if this has been applied to aging. I do know that it's been applied to, um, intractable depression and OCD. And in fact, there's a study in my lab that's looking at psilocybin and OCD and it's showing that guess what? It works. You know, like it's, I'm not even surprised anymore by the, by the results. I'm like, oh, it can cure that too. Of course. It can. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Isn't OCD really hard to medicate? Yeah, they don't have a good um, cocktail of drugs. Yeah, that's what I thought. So what I'm assuming is happening, not that we know everything about psilocybin and how it affects the brain, but um, what I'm assuming is happening is just it, it coheres. It, there's less stratification of the networks. And so the networks can actually work together in whatever goal 
the human wants to do. Maybe if like you engage in activities that stimulate multiple like spheres of the brain or multiple senses or something like that in general, that might be beneficial. Yeah, that is. So I'm talking about learning in the sense that yes, doing a puzzle every now and then is great, but the activities that the brain really likes are things that stimulate all of it. Right. So like that's why, I, that's why I mentioned playing an instrument because playing an instrument is sort of like ultimate workout for, if you haven't played an instrument before, like I, I, I picked up the cello, like really late in my life. And I, and I, my first lesson, my brain, I could literally feel my brain going, what are we doing? This is so hard because there's so many things that you have to do. You have to hear, you have to pay attention. Your body has to do certain movements. There's motor movements and, you know, there's a feeling of music that you get. So it's very emotional at the same time. So that's, that's a hard one, but a good one. Um, and any exercise that you like, the brain also likes. So I'm a big proponent of every day you should do something active. Like you shouldn't sit down all day says the postdoc who has sat down all day. So this might be kind of weird and I don't think there's an answer to it, but um, if trying new things and stimulating your brain is so good for you, why do we kind of as humans have an emotional aversion to some extent of trying new things like liking comfort or liking routine, if that makes any sense? Okay, let me tell you a big secret. Are you ready? You're gonna, you're gonna have to lean in. It's a big secret that only your listeners no, the brain is really lazy. The brain, if you think about it, is, is like a very expensive, unknown to us piece of computational machinery that does tasks, um, very fancy tasks, but it still does tasks. And if it already knows a way to do a task, why would it learn another way? That just takes so much. So it's all about energy conservation. If you think about the uh, brain in an energy conservation kind of way, it doesn't want to learn something new, which, which will consume so much energy. So it will always want the path of least resistance. But that's why we know this now. And we can say, now, hold on, this will make me live longer. So just hold on until it's easy. That makes me think of those videos of people tying their shoes in really elaborate ways. And I'm like, why would you ever do that when you could just tie them slightly too loose and slip them on every time? You see, this is such a great example of how the brain is like, exactly. I don't need to do all this. I will mention though, that once you try something several times and it's new and it's frustrating, once you get it, whatever the thing is, you get a huge rush of all the good neurotransmitters and you get a lot of reward, which will make you want to do that thing more. So kind of just hang in until the brain figures it out. That's honestly how I feel about picking up roller skating at 23 because it was really hard to start and I've fallen a lot and bruised myself in many places. But once I learn something new, it's so gratifying and I'm glad that I started a new skill. All right. So let's get to the theory that has the most pull right now. And I'm saying that because it always changes. So at this time, whatever day it is in 2022 now, there's this theory that there is less posterior or back of the brain activation uh, and more frontal activation, which is interesting to me. And this is just kind of my thought on this is that when our brain develops in utero, 
it develops that way. So it develops from anterior to posterior. And so when we age, that's how it also dies, I guess. <laughs> so my advisor, uh, Dr. Jessica Andrews Hanna, has published um, a lot on this showing that the anterior to posterior region, so the front to the back of the brain, specifically in this default mode network that has to do with internal thought is very functionally connected. So remember that means the two regions, the front and the back of the brain of this network, they communicate in sync. They're very in sync in younger people, but in older people, they go out of sync. Um, and this is independent of um, Alzheimer's pathology. We don't know why, <laughs> but that is just what happens. Abby? Did the structural <laughs> connectivity between those two regions change as well or just functional? So I mostly focus on functional, but yes, there are studies that show the structural connectivity also changes. We lose, basically what happens is we lose our scaffolding we lose coherence in those fiber tracts that um, keep the brain regions connected. So that is how the brain regions are communicating through those fiber tracts, right? So these fiber tracts are sort of like a, like the cord to your um, whatever technological device. I'm thinking of a laptop because I'm always on my laptop, but that cord gets frayed. I shouldn't say frayed because that's it just loses coherence. It, it becomes less able to... Um, very um, smoothly pass signal from one brain regions to the other. Maybe like a road and it develops like potholes and cracks and stuff. So just less, less being able to, the whole idea is that the whole brain is not communicating as efficiently. So this is not in the paper, but I thought I can't just leave people with this like super depressing, the brain is just going to like <laughs> it's gonna, it's just gonna completely dissipate, right? So I want to leave you with something that I'm actually studying now called a positivity effect, which is something um, that's sort of counterintuitive, but it, it's kind of cool. So older people actually favor positive versus negative information, both in memory and in attention. This is irregardless of how much their um, brain is actually occupied with other things. So if you give someone a task and then ask them about something positive or negative and their brain is sort of like still thinking about that task, it doesn't matter. So this is again, back to the whole resources thing, like how many resources does the brain have? Irregardless of that, older people just cross the board tend to show more positive, positive attention or more attention towards positive things like faces or pictures or even smiling dogs. <laughs> like, so this brings us to the last theory. I'm sure your listeners are like, could she have any more theories? Yes, I have one more. It's called a socio-emotional selectivity theory or SST, which is, I think, kind of like cool to think about. So this is a theory that talks about how, like, why would someone be more positive, right? When we're young, um, and I'm going to bring in a sort of physicsy kind of term called the time horizon. When we're young, our time horizon is very long and nebulous. We don't know what's going to happen. And so a lot of our brain's energy is funneled towards, I must achieve, I must learn. Lots of goal things, lots of trying to make money, trying to figure out a career, trying to learn as many things as possible. As we age, our time horizon shortens this motivates a shift in attention, 
which means that we are no longer that concerned about those things, but instead are concerned about things that are emotionally meaningful, like family. So that also changes how we pay attention to our environment and how we make memories as we get older and how we remember memories. So if some of our memories in our youth didn't have those very meaningful uh, weights to them that we care about now, then maybe we're not going to remember them. We're going to remember all the positive things that happen. So that's just the theory of how we might get from, from this sort of kind of shift to a like more positive um, outlook on life. Do you think that a similar thing happens if someone is like diagnosed younger with a terminal illness? Yes, I think so, because they they did the study where they switched and they gave people like they gave old people a very long horizon and young people a very short horizon. And that seemed to also to also uh, make their attention towards Oh, wait a minute. This is what's actually important. But I'm only going to think about it for this particular experiment. So I've uh, this might be kind of random, but like I've been getting kind of more into stoicism as I get older, which is kind of obviously I don't know if anyone else is familiar with it, but kind of a philosophy that centers around like embracing the idea that you're going to die. It's basically YOLO philosophy, I guess, but like more ethical. (laughs) Could you potentially maybe have more positive outlook on your life when you're younger if you remind yourself every day that you're going to die? I was reading about this theory and I thought, so all people have to do, because you know, in the Eastern religions, and I know Stoicism isn't Eastern, but- um, It's very similar though. Yeah. It is similar. Yes. Yeah. In the Eastern uh, religions and, you know, modes of thought, they always bring up this, this idea that mm, death isn't scary, right? Death is just something that happens and we shouldn't be afraid of it. And it's very contrasted to Western cultures where it's like, don't think about death. You know, it's super scary. And of course that leads to all kinds of other things because stoicism has this thing in common with like Buddhism that you what's happening now? What's happening in the present moment? You're not dead yet. Aren't you grateful that you're not dead yet? Like remind yourself of that. And that's like the easiest thing you can be grateful for and happy for. So I just wonder, could you manipulate the brain from a younger age to think that way? And a lot of this um, aging research is very new and we haven't looked at the cultural aspect of it because I think that's sort of tied to this this on the cultural side of things I would be really interested to see the comparison of that life outlook between people in their 60s and 70s who have retired and between those who are still working into their elderly years on the flip side though people who are working are doing like more activities they're doing your things because I thought that always like I thought they always kind of recommended that you at least stay intellectually active but that people who do work longer into life typically don't get neurodegenerative diseases. I don't know. It's any kind of, like I said before, I will repeat as a, as a, as a like big announcement to everyone, it doesn't matter what you do as, as long as you stay active. Even if like the, per, the, the senior person like works at a grocery store, if they work at a grocery store, I mean, you may not think about this, but there's all these things, right? You see people, their social interaction. That's a huge, um, predictor of whether or not you're going to be happier as, a, as an elderly person, if you have like a big social network or not. So social aspect, there's, you know, like they have to do math, they have to pay attention. Um, they have to, you know, like move around any kind of moving is good. So, you know, I don't know what they're doing when they're retired. Maybe they are moving around. 
I don't know. You do you see how hard it is to kind of compare? This is like the crux of science is that you can never have the perfect experiment mm. because you can't really control for everything, although I yeah. really, really want to. Yeah, I mean, I think it just brings up a really interesting, I guess, existential question of, especially like COVID and everything. I feel like some people have been like, you know, screw careers. I'm kind of done with the grind. I'm going to do my own thing. And it is kind of a weird balance where you need to make sure that you have enough time where you're doing things that are outside of work that aren't stressful and makes you, I guess, enjoy your life and appreciate that you're going to die one day. But then like you also need to keep like stimulated and busy and not just, you know, sit with yourself too much. So it- yeah, I think there's a lot of missing of reflection time. There isn't a lot of reflection time, which is very important for putting things into perspective and putting things in our, you know, processing boxes. And that's, that's all default mode network, right? That's all, it's just, I don't think it's engaged as much as we want it or need to have it engaged. It is the first one to go when you age. So there must be some correlate there, you know, this, we're just kind of speculating here, but why is it, you know, and there are, I mean, we're talking about Eastern cultures. How come some Eastern cultures live so much longer? You know, like what is their, we're looking at their diet, but is it their diet, you know, or is it like the way that they're thinking about their life? Are they just maybe not working 10 hours a day, even in healthy aging? Again, there's so many variables that we don't know, you know, culture being one of them. Yes. How we think about our outlook are like how, because our brain is so, so it's a processing machine of everything that is happening in our environment, right? It's also a processing machine of what is happening inside our own head. So you put those two together. If your outside and inside environment are just a mess, then of course you're not. It's not going to, it just doesn't have the capacity to fulfill these like very, very hard duties of keeping you alive. (laughs) So it's not going to remember the brain is lazy. (laughs) Give it nice things to do with a reward at the end and it will like you. In healthy aging, when the back of the brain seems to kind of go dark or whatever, yes. um, is this potentially like a blood circulation issue? Are the neurons dying? Are they just not working? Like the myelin sheath is just degraded or? Yeah. So again, lots of theories, not a lot of answers. One thing that has been shown consistently is that we do lose gray matter volume. So our gray matter, so there's two types, there's white matter and gray matter, the gray matter being the neurons, the white matter being these fibers that Jamie um, talked about. We do lose both gray and white matter as we age. However, we don't lose in healthy aging, we don't lose so much that you actually notice deficits. So it might be due to loss of gray matter. It might be due to loss of white matter the two together combining reorgan again it's a reorganization i i don't like to say loss of anything because i don't think anything is lost when you're aging just like in adolescence when things are reorganized from youth and you kind of have a new brain you also organize your brain the other big one there's kind of like three big ones there's adolescence if you choose to have children and you become pregnant that's the other um big reorganization and then when you age. Pregnancy rearranges your brain too? Yep, not in the same extent as adolescence. Adolescence is the biggest one. It's whenever hormones get involved, you know? 
So actually we had an interesting conversation about hormones when we all talked um, before recording the podcast. Do we want to kind of delve into a bit of a discussion about how hormones impact aging? I will tell you what I know, but it's not a lot. <laughs> the main thing that has been studied is estrogen in, in cis females. And I was so curious about everybody else. <laughs> and I did so as a good little researcher that I am, I did very, you know, like I spent so much time in, you know, on all the journal sites and whatnot, just starting in 2019, the first one basically is in 2019 that all, and it's not even that informative, right? Um, it was a study about just in adolescence, adolescents who choose to undergo hormone therapy to switch to another gender, all, all they saw is that when they get older, their executive function is altered. And then the other cool thing that I thought that I was mentioning, okay, so let me, sorry, let me go back to the cis, cause this is just like the most research. The most research is on cis women and estrogen. Estrogen or estradiol, estrogen is a type, estradiol in the brain is very, very prevalent in, in, in women. It's literally everywhere. It is, it plays a role in cognition, anxiety, body temperature, sexual behavior, all these things. The one thing you should know about estrogen is that it is neuroprotective. So this, this has been highly studied and uh, there's a greater prevalence of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, for example, in men rather than women because estrogen prevents our brain from decaying, I guess, or getting, um, getting all these dementia sort of disorders. Um, however, not a lot, let me go back to all the things we don't know. We don't really know how testosterone in aging affects the whoever has testosterone, right? We do know that estrogen, we know that it's neuroprotective in, in cis people. I don't know about other people because the research is just not there. I was so upset that I just kept writing like no research, no research, no research. The other cool thing that they did show, and this is a 2020 study, which is just like, really like, they just wanted to see if before transitioning brains of trans people look different from cis brains. And they actually do. I thought that was, this was really cool. Apparently the brains of trans people before and undergoing um, hormone therapy, they look more similar to, um, their experienced gender rather than their natal gender. So a trans person already knows <laughs> their brain already, it already looks like that. Um, it just, it needs a little tweak in the hormones. That's basically what they, you know. So just structurally, again, there's no functional, there's no fun studies showing how we're gonna age, how, how this population is gonna age compared to this. There's none of that, which just is so disappointing, but it is starting because there's, this is how we start in neuroimaging. We always start with structure. Well, are they physically different? Let's see. And guess what? They are. And so because they're so different, now they're going to put people in a scanner, give them different tasks, see how they respond to emotional stimuli, et cetera, et cetera. But sadly, <laughs> I have to report that there's just not a lot of research. So like we were kind of talking about aging 
and like this idea that we're going to need to, I guess, figure out how to resolve or figure out what's going on in the brain um, if we're going to live for longer. But what do you guys, how do you guys feel about the idea of like living longer or living forever or just the ethics of um, trying to create, you know, scientific products or whatever to increase longevity of humanity? The longer I live, the longer the capitalists are going to try to squeeze labor out of me. And I think, I think mortality gives life meaning. I don't want to live forever. It's like a catch 22, right? It's like, if you live forever, then you're not going to think about death. So then your brain is going to be crappy, right? As we've established. There's, I mean, when things end, there's meaning, right? Anything. And so if you don't have an end to things, what does anything even mean? I don't want to live forever either. (laughs) I also think about how hard it would be to constantly adapt to the changing world, especially as technology is speeding up. Like you think about the people who were born in like 1930 and are alive right now. They must be like, what is happening? You know, I don't know that I would just want to constantly have to change my worldview and always be adjusting to the changing world. It's very difficult. There's a rigidity. This is another sciencey thing, but there is a rigidity in the brain where as you get older, where you can't adapt to new ideas. It's just a biological thing. You can't really adapt to new ideas. Um, I think it's cool to wrap up with either something that you learned from, so actually maybe two things, something you learned from this discussion and then something you're excited to see uh, in the future. I learned that roller skating past like childhood age is super cool. And what I want to see in the future is more research in aging on populations that are minorities and we need to know what happens. So I think the biggest thing I learned was, well, I guess everything in between the the uh, cellular point of view of a neuron <laughs> to what a big brain looks like. So that was good. Um, but also just that your brain changes so much like over life. I guess I just kind of thought like, oh, adolescence, and then you're kind of done. Um, but yeah, I guess just this idea that change is inevitable and that change is not necessarily bad um, from a neuroscience perspective and also a life perspective, probably. And in the future, I would like to see um, kind of more studies about maybe how interventions and how we think maybe philosophically could potentially help with transitioning or being happier. What I learned that's going to stick with me the most is that the best way to exercise your brain is learning new things that aren't like crazy strenuous and also moving your body. I thought that was interesting how physical movement has such a big impact on the brain instead of some kind of mental exercise, like a math problem or something. And I would really like to see more research into Alzheimer's. My grandfather has Alzheimer's and I'd really love to see that go further. Thank you all for joining me today on this podcast. Um, thanks to Dora for presenting and thanks to Abby and Emma for um, being wonderful guests. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, <laughs> and thank you to all of you listening for listening to the first episode of In Plain English in 2022. We've been talking about the paper Reorganization of Brain Networks and Aging, a review of functional connectivity studies by Roser Salayanch et al. You can find all of our previous episodes on Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please subscribe to us so that you never miss a future episode. Again, please follow us on social media on Facebook and Twitter at Plain English Sci. 
That's P-L-A-I-N-E-N-G-L-I-S-H-S-C-I. You can also find us on our website and download the paper at inplainenglishpod.org. See you next time. Bye.